Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3.16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. host Melba Toast and we are starting another book critique today. So let me ask you a question. Anybody ever tell you to quote unquote get out of your head? I mean what does that even mean? What does it mean that you're in your head and what does that look like? How do you get out of your head and what does that look like? So I asked the world's bible, Google, what it means to get out of your head. Idioms by the freedictionary.com says getting out of your head means managing to forget someone or something to stop thinking about or wanting someone or something. Now, as a Christian woman, I'm thinking, and is this a bad thing that I'm thinking since it's, you know, in my head? <laughs> anyway, I'm thinking, well, by that definition, being in my head doesn't seem so bad, especially if I were to say that I want to constantly be thinking about Christ and his word. I want to be like the psalmist who says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for they have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. That was Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. Now, I read this section of Psalms 119 to show how meditating on God's law and his word benefited the psalmist. In fact, all of Psalm 119 is about God's word and how it sanctifies and causes us to walk in faith, in righteousness, in humility, in joy, etc. But I will leave that discussion for a following episode. But I think when people talk about getting out of your head or being in your head, it implies that you are thinking negative thoughts, which affect your mood and behavior, and these are thoughts that you should get rid of. Or perhaps it can mean you're overthinking things or are ruled by fear and anxiety. Everybody experiences negative thoughts about themselves, about others, about life, and about the world in general. And women are especially prone to this due to our relational nature and the hormonal byproducts of our body. And this is also why women have a higher rate of being diagnosed with anxiety than men do. ScientificAmerican.com states, quote, The lifetime rate of diagnosis of anxiety disorders is higher in women, with 33% experiencing an anxiety disorder in their lifetime, as compared with 22% of men. Experts believe this difference arises from a combination of hormonal fluctuations, brain chemistry, and upbringing. Women are more often 
feel responsible for the happiness of others, such as their children or their spouse, end quote. ScientificAmerican.com article titled Anxiety Disorders More Common in Women from a July 1st, 2013 issue. And this is why Jenny Allen wrote her study, Get Out of Your Head, A Study in Philippians. Her book claims to be a study in Philippians accomplished in six sessions. Miss Allen makes a claim that this is a Bible study, or at least a study, in the book of Philippians. Because of this, these types of studies are bought in bulk by churches, to which a lady then purchases the book and attends the weekly study in Sunday school or separate ministry classes. Now, I decided for this critique to actually attend the classes along with reading the book. So this book took me a lot longer to critique because of the six-week classes that I attended. I want to add a little caveat here. When Where I attended the classes is not my home church. The classes were held for a women's ministry under a Calvary Chapel church. I myself no longer hold to some of the foundational teachings from Calvary Chapel, but I did grow up attending Calvary Chapel churches with my parents and some later on with my husband. I had a very interesting church life as a child, teen, and young adult, but that's a story for another time. So, having attended several Calvary chapels across the United States, yes, I said across the United States, I know what to expect in attending women's ministry under these churches. And I want to say this, though I do not agree with some of their foundational teachings of biblical doctrine, it is always a pleasure to meet with women who, like me, are in hope of studying God's Word and diving deeper into it. If you have actually been following me and listening to my podcast from the beginning, which is not very long, then you have probably grasped by now how important I feel doctrine is, especially grasping right doctrine, understanding it, and how right doctrine affects what we believe, strengthening our faith in God, making life more joyful. And this is what Philippians is about, the joy of the Lord that comes despite any circumstance from knowing and understanding Christ and his word. So of course, getting into these studies, I was intrigued as to how she would handle scripture and what quote unquote getting out of our heads had to do with having the joy of the Lord. Now each session is to be done in a week, which includes an introductory video, which we can watch at home through an app called Right Now Media. We are then instructed to read the scripture selected, answer the in-depth questions, and end with weekly projects that she encourages us to accomplish, believing they will help us absorb and live out the teachings we receive from this study. So now that I have laid all of that out, we can now dive into session one. Session one's title is Introduction Spiraling Out. In Miss Allen's introduction, she starts out by describing the first time she taught on this. She had placed on a whiteboard the question, what are you thinking about? And underneath were sticky notes with certain topics to which she asked the women in the group to identify those that were consuming their thoughts. Topics such as others' opinions, finances, news, holidays, etc. And what she discovered in this little experiment was that many of the topics chosen were negative versus the positive, those such as choosing joy, strength, and good memories, etc. Those remained on the whiteboard. And this is where she then introduces the spiral. 
She claims that the spiral begins with assumptions, leading to emotions, leading to beliefs, leading to actions, leading to habits which have consequences. Quote, now I've got to tell you, based on what these women indicated they were thinking about, I pretty much knew what assumptions they were making. Assumptions such as, if people knew how badly I'd failed, they'd never loved me, and my worth comes from my ability to be perfect. No wonder I am not worthy of much. As a result of these assumptions, emotions surface. Frustration, anger, despondency, hopelessness, embarrassment, inadequacy, shame... From those emotions, beliefs begin to form. I'll never thrive on my career. I'll never be good enough. I'll never be accepted and loved. I'll never get out of debt. We spiral down and down. From these beliefs, actions are taken. We numb our pain. We hide our fear. We take, um, we fake our happiness. We will armor up. These actions over time form habits which craft the lifestyles that shape our days. In quote, page 11. All throughout this study, she will return to the spiral over and over again, using it to describe how we can correct our thinking by applying the weapons she believes Philippians gives. We'll get into these weapons in sessions 3 and 4. Miss Allen says, quote, We don't simply need our spiraling thoughts to stop. We need our minds to be redeemed. That the one who sets her mind on Christ better yet realizes that she has already been given the mind of Christ and therefore is deeply and intrinsically motivated and moved by an entirely different source. Not only do I make Jesus happy, but I find my complete happiness in him. These are truths that if we could only believe would change everything. End quote. Page 14 to 15. Now, she's completely right on this. Our minds do need to be redeemed, as Paul tells us in Romans 12one 1-2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's look at this verse before we dive in, because I believe it has implications into what we're going to be looking at as we go along in this study. So we can see what Paul believes is the foundation of spiritual worship, the, wor the renewing of our minds. Because we renew our minds, we are able to test what is the will of God, and therefore present our bodies to that will, which is always good, acceptable, and perfect. But to renew our minds, we must first believe the gospel. We must first believe that we are great sinners who, are, who were enemies of God, yet while we were enemies, God sent his son to perfectly obey the law, die on the cross for all of our sins, and be raised on the third day, conquering sin, death, and the devil. And now he calls all people to repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in his work, thereby giving us his righteousness and taking on our sins, so that we may receive the Holy Spirit and no longer walk in the flesh, but in his spirit. And now because of the gospel, we can have his spirit and renew our minds in his word. This is how our minds are rede redeemed. But first, Jenny wants to let us know why redeeming our minds is important. Miss Allen warns us that, quote, It is possible to waste our lives if we never learn to take our thoughts captive. 
Your thoughts produce actions that echo out into eternity. If you shut down because of the noise in your head, untold generations of kingdom builders could be missed. End quote, page, fi- page 15. Now, I get why she says this, because in a way she's right that our thoughts will direct our actions. But in all truth, it is God that builds his kingdom, and that through the proclamation of the gospel, Romans 10:14, The gospel is a message that does not depend on our spiraling thoughts, and therefore the growth of the kingdom does not depend on me making sure I take every thought captive. But my sanctification does depend on my thoughts. And yes, our sanctification involves our love towards others, which affects those in and out of the kingdom of God. But this is where I'm kind of starting to roll my eyes. And so she says we have a choice. The choice of living with these thoughts or the choice to no longer be a victim to our thoughts and fight the enemies of our minds. This is what she claims are the enemies of our minds. Self-importance, noise, cynicism, isolation, complacency, victimhood, and anxiety. That's from page 16. Now, here's my question. Should these things be considered enemies or are they sins? That if we confess them and preach the gospel to ourselves, we may overcome them? Or is it like she says, that they are enemies, which then makes us not culpable, and therefore we need to develop strategies, or aka weapons, to fight these enemies? These are just some of the questions I'm keeping in mind as I go through her study. Quote, God gave you a choice. You are free to live as a child, and therefore an heir of God. End quote. Page 16. Again, will she point us to our sins and tell us to trust in Christ, in which we have perfect righteousness, making us children of God? Because we are in Christ, we are heirs. Our actions do not make us children, but are a result of being children. At this point, I had this side thought. Since Philippians is about rejoicing in Christ, do we gain contagious joy from following the example of Jesus, or do we gain contagious joy from meditating on Jesus and what he's done, leading to joy in being like Jesus? I'm thinking especially of having joy during suffering, because we can count it all joy when faced with trials, because Jesus faced trials. So then the joy comes not from following the example of Jesus, but knowing Jesus and sharing in all his life. In the first session, she gives a background into the epistle written for the Philippians, a promising way to start a Bible study. So in the back of my mind, I am smiling. (laughs) She also encourages that scripture will engage the mind and the heart. Quote, the goal of the study is to dig deeply into scripture and uncover how it applies to your life to deeply engage the mind and the heart. End quote. Page seven. Now, after a short two and a half pages of background into the epistle, she goes directly into a project to explore our own thoughts. She guides us into completing what she calls a mind map and then asks questions uh, such as, quote, if you were to make one shift in the way you think, what would it be? End quote, page 25. Seven pages are spent on thinking about and exegeting our own thoughts. And that's where my style smile starts to slowly turn into a blank expression. But 
Perhaps session two will bring back the smile. To end session one, she instructs us to memorize one of the most incredibly theological statements that express Christ's humility and love for us. Philippians chapter two, verses five to 11. And I heartily support this. All right, so we move on to session two, which is titled Making the Shift. Quote, are you ready for a shift? Jenny asks. Do you ever wonder why some Christians, despite their circumstances, are full of joy? Or how Paul, writing from jail in Rome, can claim to rejoice in Christ even in the midst of his suffering? These thoughts, she says, beg the question, quote, What are you looking toward that makes you happy? End quote, page 32. This is supposed to reveal what we're living for. And too many times these things, instead of making us happy, cause fear and anxiety. Why? Because we put our trust in them to make us happy instead of God. Quote, you see, if God is good and loving and in control, you can put your head on the pillow, even with, cha- with chaos swirling around and the people you love out of your control. Because you know him and you know he has him. He has you. He has it all. Now this is easier preached and harder lived. Change is difficult and may come slow. After all, these are ingrained thoughts and entangled sins. But because we have been made new creations, we have the Spirit's power and a choice to make. Changing our minds is possible. We do not have to spin. End quote. Page 32. I love that she identifies this because she's right. God has all of it. He is sovereign over everything. Colossians 1, 16 to 17. Just a study on God's sovereignty can ease most fears and anxiety that we women go through. So knowing God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit will affect what we believe, think, and do. And I love that she identifies that thoughts that are the result of a lack of knowing God are entangled sins. But does she believe that? Will she show and proclaim how these thoughts are sin? For everything that is not from faith is sin. Romans 14.23 And so she says that, quote, getting out of our heads begins with understanding our position in Christ, end quote, page 38. And then quotes three scripture verses in regards to our position in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, 1 Corinthians 2, 16, and 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Quote, the more we understand our position with Christ, in Christ, through Christ, the less we try hard and the more we surrender. End quote, page 39. Okay, so I agree with some of this because she points to our position in Christ, without knowing Christ himself, as Paul said that he presumed to know nothing among the Corinthians but Christ and him crucified for this reason, 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. Just like all relationships, one does not trust another person based on what our position may be in relation to them. But our security, belief, trust, and change of mind comes from getting to know that person. We come to know Christ by his word. Just thinking I am in Christ's body or I have his mind will not renew the mind. Without knowing him, we will not understand what these verses entail and mean. In essence, we will not know how to be like him and that includes in our thoughts. 
Now this is where she describes the downward spiral we can get into if our thoughts are not set on Christ. And I will do my best to describe it for you, as you cannot see the picture she has included. Now, imagine a drawing of an arrow that looks like a, a stretched out slinky. With each coil, she has these five words. At the top, there's the word emotion, which then spirals down to the word thought, spiraling down to the word behavior, then to relationships, and finally the word consequence. And this is how she believes our thoughts spiral downward. She then contrasts this spirit spiral with one spiraling upward with the same words, but emotions is at the bottom and consequences are at the top. Now, I think her spiral is correct, but only for those who walk in the flesh. Our flesh is guided by our emotions and desires, but to walk in the spirit is to be guided by the renewing of our minds, as Paul said. To do this, we must be studying God's word, thereby discerning God's good and pleasing will and walking in it. So our spirit is not guided by our emotions but by every thought that is made captive to obey Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10.5. Knowing Christ changes our admiration and love for him, resulting in thoughts that are about him and trust him, resulting in desires to behave and be like him in our knowledge, thoughts, emotions, and actions, resulting in producing the fruits of the Spirit, resulting in relationships guided by love and serving like Christ, resulting in gospel-centered life, gospel-centered speech, peace, joy, and trust in God. Quote, This spiral starts with the stance of surrender towards God that reminds us we are His. He is working through us and we have a choice. So, when we're faced with the emotion that threatens to send us downward, we take hold of one thought. I have a choice. End quote. Page 42. Now, I would say the upward spiral should start with the foundation of Christ, knowing him, reading and learning about him, and having faith in him. Then, when our emotions threaten to send us downward, we can take hold of this thought. I have Christ. In this session, she will introduce a study to which we are to read another passage of scripture and answer two questions. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want from me? In each session that has this act uh, activity, I feel it's very lacking. Now, please know that I believe all scripture is profitable, so I would never say that reading any section of scripture is useless. So that's not what I mean by lacking. I believe that her choice of passage should have included the verses that came before or after, as every single passage she asked us to read includes beautiful teachings on what God and Christ has done for us. I will explain this for each session. So for this session, she has us read Romans 8, 5 to 11. And remember, we're asked to... Um, in each passage to explain about who God is and what he wants for us. Specifically, Romans 8, 5 to 11 goes into contrasting the mindset on the flesh versus the mindset on the spirit. So I grasp why she's included this passage. It really does reveal a lot about who God is and what he wants for us. 
but if she had included the verses starting back in verse 1, we would have read more about what God wanted for us, that he provided, that Christ set us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weak in the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verses three to four. The righteous requirement that includes thoughts and emotions was fulfilled by Christ. And any thoughts that are not a result of faith, Christ condemned and died for. Meaning, all God sees are Christ's thoughts, the mind of Christ, if we are walking in faith by the Spirit. Miss Allen says, quote, The people who stand out to me are the ones who have chosen to trust Jesus more than trusting their ability to make everything work out fine. These heroes of the faith are not subject to their own thoughts. They are not subject to their feelings. They believe in one chief aim, and with every ounce of their power, they are working to think about Christ. End quote, page 42. I totally agree with this. The more we think about Christ, the less we think about everything else. The question is, if Christ is what we should take every ounce of power to focus on, will he be proclaimed in this study? Paul proclaims him in Philippians, but will Jenny's teachings be focused on him, or will they be more focused on us and what we need to do to fight the downward spiral? So, while we're only in the beginning of this, I had positive and negative things to say, so I got a bit of mixed emotions going on. There's a lot more talk about Christ, and she mentions being entangled in sins. She acknowledges that the problem is ingrained thoughts and entangled sins, and her solution is reminding us that we were made new creations in Christ Jesus, have the Spirit's power, and can make a choice, and because of this, changing our minds is possible. What I wish would have been discussed was to talk about repentance as changing our minds. In repentance, we go from following the desires of the flesh to acknowledging that those desires are sinful and against God and agreeing with what God says in Scripture is true. This is what the Bible talks about with changing our minds or renewing our minds. Repentance is at the foundation of that. Because we are at enmity with God, denying Him in our thoughts. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 7-8 By the Spirit and by the reading his, of His word, we change our minds or repent of, his, of this hostility and direct our thoughts towards acknowledging Him and His ways. I'm encouraged by the scripture study questions and her pointing to Christ, but I'm curious about whether she will identify certain thoughts and behaviors as sin, which she identifies as enemies of our mind, to which we should repent and trust in Christ and his atonement for those sins. And then I also question whether she rely more on psychology than Christ as the weapons to fight the enemies of our mind. So we shall see. Until next time, I pray you are in God's word.